We now come to our sermon passage, and we are continuing on in the Gospel of John. Last week we looked at the resurrection of Jesus and his first appearance to Mary Magdalene. And this week we're continuing on, and Jesus here appears to his disciples. And this is the uh, evening of that first Easter morning. So Jesus has risen from the dead, and he goes to appear to his disciples. And I'll say before we start, Jesus had more than just 12 disciples, but there was a specific 12 that followed with him were his ministry uh, helpers in his uh, time on earth, and who were then commissioned to go out and plant churches and write scripture. This is the first time Jesus appears to them after his resurrection. John 20, verses 19 through 23, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that in it you show us who you are and what you're about. and you, So you show us who we are in you. So I pray in these moments as we stare into the treasures of your word that you would move by your Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts to the realities of you, that you would show us what you do in the midst of our fear, that you would show us your grace here in this moment, for we need it. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you guys ever been hangry? You know I'm talking about hangry, right? Hangry is when you're so hungry that it's like your brain shuts off. You're so hungry that suddenly the IQ of everybody around you drops 30 points. It just, everything's about to set you off. It's like your brain start, stops working. And it feels like that because, in a sense, your brain has stopped working. Scientists have actually looked into hangriness, and they found that your brain, when it gets hungry, really does kind of short-circuit. Suddenly, the physiology changes. Your hormones shift, your brain and your nervous system go haywire, and the things in you that trigger anger or sadness or fear, they suddenly are heightened. Meaning that, just like the Snickers commercials say, you are not you when you are hungry. You are not you when you are hungry. You get overloaded and overrun by this impulse that dominates and kind of colors everything else. Well, the same is true not just of hunger. It's true of other things as well. It's true of things like fear in an even more heightened way. Fear can dominate. Fear can darken our hearts. It can crowd everything else out of view. You are not you when your heart is gripped by fear. And that is scary because we live in a world full of fearful things. We live in a world that are full of things that make us fearful. And so I asked this morning, in light of the passage we've just read, what does Jesus have to say about our fear? What does Jesus do for us or to us or say to us 
in the midst of our fear. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And the first, uh, I'm going to break it up into a couple of different sections. And the first one is this. Jesus declares peace to us in our fear. Jesus declares peace to us in our fear. So the disciples here, gathered in this room, they've followed Jesus for three years. Three years is a pretty long time. They've followed Jesus for three years, and they've seen him do absolutely incredible things. They've seen him heal blind people, heal the lame. They've seen him call a friend of theirs who died out from the grave. It's remarkable. They've heard Jesus say incredible things. They've heard him teach over and over again. They've heard him speak. And they were his right-hand guys. And so right before the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples are just booming with confidence. They're booming with confidence. In the, the case of Peter maybe the unofficial leader of the disciples, he had declared that he would die for Jesus. That he believed so much in who Jesus was and what he was doing. I, he'll die for him. But here, what do we see? We meet these men in terror. They're locked in a room. Jesus had been crucified and it had seized the, the disciples' hearts with fear because they thought they were next. And so they rejected him in their fear, and they had hidden out behind locked doors, barricading themselves inside. And so in this room, there are ten men stewing in their fear, trading it back and forth. Now, Jesus had twelve disciples that traveled with him for those three years. Two of them aren't here. Judas isn't here because he had sold Jesus out and never turned back to Jesus. Thomas isn't here, and we don't know why. We'll find more out about Thomas next week. Um, but there's, there's ten disciples, absolutely terrified, stewing in their fear, trading it back and forth. And then suddenly, there's eleven people in this room. Because they find that the resurrected Jesus is standing with them in their fear. And what does Jesus have to say to them? He doesn't say, you guys, you left me in the lurch. You, you abandoned me in the moment of my greatest trial. He doesn't say, shame on you, you cowards. What does Jesus say to them? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Their locked door and the fear of their hearts, maybe an even stronger locked door, cannot keep him away. He chases them in their fear, and he stands with them in it, and in the midst of their fear, he declares to them, this is my intention for you. This is God's intention for you. Peace. Peace be with you. Peace you did not earn. Peace that is greater than your fear. Peace that I bring to you and no one can take away. Friends, I don't know what you may be fearful of or Maybe you're not going through a season of, of fear, but so often we do. Know that Jesus stands with you in your fear. No matter how many bolts you've locked on the door of your heart and the hurdles you've put in the way, Jesus is intent to stand with you in it and declare God's intentions for you. Peace. Peace. Grace. Love. This word peace has a deep history in Scripture. 
In the Old Testament, we read about it, and the, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. You've probably heard that before. Shalom means peace. And it doesn't just mean peace in the sense of feeling peace, though it includes that. It, it, it's a reality of peace. It's a, it's a, a sense that um, God is at work to make sure that the hostility, violence, that the sin and chaos of our world cannot have the final word. So it has this deep history in Scripture. In fact, in the Old Testament, when they thought forward about the idea that God would make all things new, that He would overcome the power of sin, they described the characterizing thing of that future new creation, shalom, peace. They longed for shalom, peace. You know, the end of our service every week is this benediction from Scripture. And benediction is a word that means a good word or a word of blessing. And every week, God gets the final word in our worship service. And in our church, on every single week except for one, we have used the exact same benediction. It's from Numbers chapter 6. In Numbers 6, God is giving instructions to the priest of the tabernacle. And He gives them these words that they would declare at the end of worship every day. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine on you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn His face toward you and give you peace, shalom. The idea was the people had gathered to worship. They had brought offerings. They had prayed and sung. They had heard God's words read and sang. And lest they wonder as they leave the tabernacle or later the temple, lest they wonder God's intentions from them as they are marching out, it's proclaimed upon them peace. That is what God works for us, for His people. Peace. That is what God is doing in our world. He is working to defeat the enemies of peace for His people. So it wasn't a mistake when Jesus showed up that the first words he says to his cowardly disciples who had abandoned him, whose good intentions and, and positivity and strength had run out, it is not a mistake that the first words he says in their midst is peace, shalom, peace be with you. Peace be with you. He wanted them to know that in their fear, no, no matter how deeply, deeply it had gripped their hearts, that God had not given up on that ten, intention of peace. Because they had seen all their hopes dwindle as Jesus was crucified. And now he stands before them resurrected. And he is letting them know that this crucifixion that drove fear into your hearts is actually the pathway for God assuring that that peace is bring, being brought about for you. He wanted them to know that he stands with them in their fear and will not stop declaring God's peace to them. Did you notice he says it twice as he's standing there with them in this passage? He says it twice right here. And as we'll see actually next week, he appears to them again the next Sunday when they are again together in a locked room, and what he says again the next Sunday is, peace be with you. In fact, there's, uh, that's actually the source. There's so many people that have wondered, how did a group of uh, Jewish po folks who had always worshipped on Saturdays, why did they start worshipping on Sundays? 
Like, that's such a huge disruption. Why did the early church start worshiping on Sundays instead of Saturdays? Well, the reason was is Sunday was the day, the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. It was the day, that first Easter, and then the next Sunday when Jesus stood in the midst of his disciples and declared, Peace be with you. The idea was God's people gather on that first day of the week to recognize that Jesus is alive and it changes everything. And in the midst of our gatherings, no matter what fear or sin we bring in the door, Jesus is with us by his Holy Spirit and he is declaring, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he, he will repeat it as much as we need to hear it. Peace be with you. That's essentially what our worship service is every week. When we gather in this room, no matter if there's 10 of us or 50 of us or 100 of us, there's always one more than our head count accounts for. And it's the one that makes all the difference. It is Jesus here with us speaking to us by his spirit, declaring, peace be with you. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the experience in churches. There's some churches that as part of their worship service, they have a, a thing called passing the peace. They stand up and they maybe shake hands and they say, peace be with you, peace be with you. And I always thought, where did that come from? Well, it hit me this week. I didn't realize it until this week. What it was, was the development of this idea that the church is the body of Christ. And as we gather, we declare to each other the words of Jesus here, the risen of Jesus, peace be with you. So maybe we'll add that into our worship service at some point. Um, it wasn't just something somebody came up with like you know, 200 years ago. It has a real meaning. Jesus is in the midst of his people and we declare to one another the intentions of the risen Jesus. Peace be with you. So uh, that's my first section. The, the, the second one here we're going to talk about is the scars of God. The scars of God. I think one of the reasons why fear is so powerful for us is because we remember times when fear was warranted. We carry scars, physical scars. Yes, we carry emotional scars. Things that if they were repeated for us, they, it makes us scared that they'll happen again. And maybe those are self-inflicted wounds. Maybe those are wounds that other people have inflicted on us. But we remember, we carry scars of this world and the violence and the sin and the chaos of this world. So here, notice that Jesus does not just stand in their midst and declare words. That would be enough. He's authoritative. He's the risen Son of God. That would be enough if he just declared words, but he doesn't. He doesn't just declare words. He shows them his scars. He shows them his hands and his side. He shows them his wounds. He shows them his wounds. It's a guarantee, in one sense, it's a guarantee to them that the, the Jesus, the person they're seeing in front of them is actually the Jesus that was crucified. It's not some pretender that showed up and was like, it's me. No, he's got the wounds that he were inflicted on him three days earlier. But I want you to think about this. Jesus is the son of God. He has power. And it means that Jesus, as he has risen from the dead, he could have healed those scars. He could have healed them. He could have risen from the dead and had absolutely perfect physique. Those scars completely healed, no evidence that they were ever there. 
Jesus kept them on purpose. Jesus kept those wounds to show them to his disciples. Almost like, uh, and forget, pardon this if it sounds weird, almost like Jesus had, these scars were like his tattoos. <laughs> you know, I don't have any tattoos myself, but if you really want to get to know somebody um, that has tattoos, ask them the story of what they have on their body. Usually it's not uh, insignificant. Most of the time people don't go get etched on their skin something that's meaningless. A lot of times you talk to somebody and you say, tell me your tattoo, and you're going to hear about the most significant moments in their life. You're going to hear them say, I have this tattoo because it reminds me of the son that I have that I never thought I would have. I never thought I'd have kids, and this tattoo is about my kid. Or they'll say, this tattoo is in remembrance of my brother who died when he was young. This tattoo is a reminder of where I've come from. This tattoo is this verse of the Bible that has carried me through, or the lyrics to this song that has meant so much to me. You're going to hear in the story of these literal scars that they have on their body the deepest significant things to them. Jesus kept these scars he could have healed and showed them to his disciples, not because they still hurt, not because he couldn't heal them, but because they were the marks, the marks of their redemption, so that they would see them and that they would know. Jesus kept these scars as in a remembrance, in a sense, as an emblem of his great love for them. And when they stare at these scars, notice their response. Notice how they respond in verse 20. It doesn't say that Jesus is standing in front of them and he shows them their scars and they felt real sorry for what they had done. It doesn't say they looked at these scars and they felt incredible guilt because Jesus had to undergo this for them. I'm sure that was in there too. But what it says in verse 20 is they saw these scars and they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. It's remarkable. The last thing they had done in reflection, uh, you know, in, in this relationship with Jesus is leave him. They might expect that if he rises from the grave in power, he is coming to that locked room to squash them. But he doesn't. He comes and declares peace. He shows these wounds because they are wounds inflicted on Jesus for them. They are the pathway for peace. And Jesus, the Son of God, experienced the wounds of sin in his body. And he didn't do it for a massive, look what I've done for you, now what are you going to do for me? Look what I've done for you, what are you going to do for me? No. When they stare at the scars of Jesus, when we contemplate the scars of Jesus for us, we are meant to see the immense love of God for us, a beauty that can chase the ugliness of our sin out and the guilt that comes from it. We are meant to see a perfect love that casts out fear. I read a poem this week written by a man, a, a pastor actually, um, just after war, World War I. And I just read a couple books on World War I. I'm not an expert um, or anything, but World War I was devastating. Incredible loss of life. 
All of a sudden, this machinery of the Industrial Revolution had been turned into weapons, and it was just massive carnage. Massive carnage. And the man that wrote this poem, he was a pastor, and he's seeing people come in England. He's seeing men come home from war, and they are scarred. They are torn to pieces. Emotionally, they're scarred. Physically, they're scarred. They're missing limbs. And so he wrote this in this poem, just to quote a portion of it. Our wounds are hurting. Where is the balm? Where's the healing, the medicine? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim grace. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds but you alone. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And that's what we see in the wounds of Jesus. They're the scars of God. Jesus is the God that does not stand far off from us. He doesn't declare peace from a distance. He wins peace for us. Peace with God. Peace with one another in His kingdom. He is the God that walks into the worst we have to offer. He bears those wounds to identify with us. He wears the penalty for our sins so that we will not walk in condemnation. He is the God with wounds. And because of those wounds, we can claim His grace. But He's not just the God of wounds. He's the resurrected God that can bring us peace beyond wounds. He can bring to us healing that makes us whole. And the invitation for us is to come and see the scars of God by faith and allow the depth of God's love to renew our hearts. And part of that renewal is my third section here. Part of our renewal is our hearts being turned toward others. And we wage peace in a world of war. We wage peace. We join God in waging peace. I don't need to tell you that we live in a world characterized by fear and wounded to the core. I mean, if you need evidence, just look at the political scene in the last 10 years. Fear dominates so many people's hearts. People are afraid, they're hurt, and it manifests in the worst ways. It's a world of chaos and hostility and violence and war. And some people, in response to this fear, they lock themselves away. They think, if I can build up a, a barricade or I can build a wall high enough it'll keep the dangers out or some people go on the attack on everyone around them and in the face of this in the face of this world of violence and war and chaos and sin what is our response as people who have heard the peace of God proclaimed on us what's our response to the world around us you know, I say it often, but what, part of what God is doing in remaking our hearts by His grace is making us like Him. And He uh, is our Father. We are children that are meant to copy after Him, to walk in His steps after Him, in a sense. Now, we can't save anyone. That's not our calling, to walk in and try to be a Savior. That doesn't work. But we are those who have heard the peace of God proclaimed to us. And we've seen the scars that Jesus bore to win us peace. And now we can be turned toward others and wage peace. I think that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 21. He speaks about the peace that's been given to us is meant to turn us toward others. Jesus breathes out, and it's like this symbolic action. 
You look back at Genesis 2, when God had created Adam, the first human, it says that he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. So what Jesus does here is he breathes out to show that the Spirit of God that brings life to death, and done it for Jesus in his tomb, is now given to his disciples. And then notice what Jesus says next. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, as an aside, this feels a little bit terrifying, honestly, because it seems like an incredible amount of power to give into the hands of some incredibly flawed people, right? But what's happening here is not Jesus deputizing and put a sheriff's badge on a bunch of people to do whatever they want. He's not writing a blank check here and telling them, go and do what you want. Jesus is just telling them, you've seen what I've done. You've heard what I've said. Now go in my power and do the same kinds of things. Be about peace. Be about forgiveness. Be about serving others. Understand that your words matter. Don't take them lightly. And you have been renewed to be God's ambassadors here, speaking peace and forgiveness. You are now people of grace in every way. You've been won by grace. You are being sent by grace. And you are declaring that grace. And this power here is not given to them to wield arbitrarily. This isn't God giving a bunch of pastors power to tell everybody else what to say and do. In fact, in the church, all authority is meant to be given on behalf or meant to be used on behalf of Jesus, committed to speaking God's words, not our own words. To say it another way, in the church, there is no one who has authority over you to do and say what they want. No pastor, no bishop, no pope, no authority that God allows to rule over you as if they are your access to God. That includes me. You know, my title on paper is senior pastor, and especially if we eventually have other pastors that are hired on, I'll be senior pastor on paper. But I'm not the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is. Jesus is. I'm an under-shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. Jesus is the pastor of this church. I've been called to care for you and teach God's word to you. God's words, not mine. You don't owe allegiance to me. You never will. I do not control or define your relationship to God, and I never will. Jesus does. He is your king. Listen to him. Listen to me and other church leaders only so far as what we say spills out from who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, back to the idea of waging peace. In this world of war, we are meant to be, as the church, a countercultural community, a place that is different, where we wage peace not based on our good intentions but because Jesus has joined us to declare God's peace to us. He stands in our midst declaring peace to us, and he invites us to be God's ambassadors, to invite people in to find peace. 
The church is meant to be a place where our words and actions proclaim forgiveness and welcome. A place where people are seen and loved, not because they earned anything, where we leave our resumes and our religious costumes behind. So today, right now, and for the rest of whatever time on earth that we are joined together in this community, let's be about this. People are blinded by fear and a thousand other things, but Jesus has broken into our broken world. He has broken into the chaos of this world to declare peace to us. So let's wage peace. This world is full of people tearing each other apart, but we have an opportunity here to stare into the grace of God and turn to this world with the grace of Jesus, inviting people to find Jesus standing alongside them them and their fear, declaring peace be with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have done what we could not. Fear can seize our hearts. Sin and heart idolatry can seize us. And we couldn't do anything about it. But in Jesus, you have broken in And in his scars, you've made a pathway for us to be at peace with you. To be known as yours and not have a question in our mind whether we may find condemnation down the road, we will not. I thank you that you have broken in. And I thank you, Lord, that you have joined us together in the church of which this small, new, local church is is a manifestation but you've brought us into the community of people who are called by your name to be people of grace and peace. So I pray, Lord, that you would color our words and our actions and our lives with your peace, that we would see ourselves as your ambassadors, that we would love people and speak forgiveness in your name, not our own. Not our own. Stand among us today. Repeat to us, peace be with you. And point us toward yourself. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.